Hi everyone, for Mixing Light, this is Kaylee Bateman and I'm here today with CJ Dobson, who is an amazing colourist in Melbourne and I've known of her and sort of tangentially met her in passing quite a few times, but I've known her for as long as I've been in the industry. Um, she's a absolute uh, pillar of the Melbourne community and she's been colouring for 15 years. She's originally from Wellington and moved to Melbourne early on in her career and worked at Digital Pictures, which is where I first heard of her. She was doing really cool things, working at DigiPix, making great music videos and colouring under the six senior colourists there and sort of uh, building on the knowledge that she already had from freelance colouring in Wellington and then in Melbourne. And then uh, at around 2012, I think it was, um, she went freelance and uh, had a couple of home suites but mainly was freelancing all around Melbourne at different post facilities and had a lot of really good connections with agencies and I sort of knew her in a short form capacity. She was doing a lot of TVC colouring at that point in her career Um, and now very excitingly she's just opened a new facility called Mood Labs Film Looks which is a big deal and it's a bit different to other post facilities. She's definitely given it its own spin and its own take on what a facility can be. Um, and it's quite exciting. And it's also really exciting to see a woman being entrepreneurial and founding a business in this space um, because it can be a bit techy and a bit of a male dominated field. So I'm very thrilled to have her here today to talk about her trajectory from freelance colorist into you know, founder and owner of the facility and to find out a bit more about Mood Labs and what they have to offer. So welcome. Thanks, Kaylee. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, um, anytime. I actually, I am not from Wellington, but I oh. did start my career there. Yeah, there's not many, other than Auckland, there's probably not many other places you can start out of the film industry, but I'm from a much smaller town. Oh, so you do that thing that we all do <laughs> when we grow up in the country and you move to the big smoke to... <laughs> Yeah. do some work oh that's yeah. cool and windy wellington how long were you there for i just lived in wellington for two years oh mm. that's that's good yeah. though that's like long enough to really feel like you're a local after two years right oh yeah it was a great time i mean wellington is just the best city apart from the weather the weather is just it's awful <laughs> <laughs> on a good day though i love wellington oh i've only been there yeah. for a couple of days and i spent most of that indoors in a suite but um i just oh. thought it was such a beautiful city like it was yeah. kind of melbourne though so it kind of makes sense why you moved to melbourne because lots of the cafe culture and little micro breweries and it looked yeah, like a lot of art yeah. and culture like a really cool spot to be it's um, a funny story i was um it's one day difference in my life um, where I could have the next day I was actually offered a job at Cutting Edge in Sydney. Um, <laughs> but the day before I accepted this job at Digital Pictures in Melbourne. So like one day different and I could have had a whole, you know, it's like this whole other life. That's a sliding doors yeah. moment right there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, um, I think but- uh, Melbourne is lucky to have you. So glad that you didn't end up in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I love Melbourne. We have this amazing community of colorists in Melbourne. That's but I just true. love like we catch up and we like go have a beer and it's um it's really wonderful and supportive and I think that that feels maybe because there are so many of us that we can do that but it does feel like kind of uniquely a Melbourne yeah. thing that we're so close. Yeah, I really love that actually, and I often see that from afar because I I was Melbourne based for a short time and now I'm Brisbane based and. There are actually people who've travelled down to Melbourne to do the colours catch-ups who are yeah. Brisbane-based. So, you know, I Angela, think it's, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the envy yeah. of Australia really in terms of that community. 
how lovely yeah we should have more um like maybe like set ones for you know for all of us to kind of get together as well there's sometimes there's ones in sydney but yeah um, oh definitely and i think that kind of cross-pollination that we don't really get as much now and i think we're going to return to this idea but you know when there were those big facilities and you could have multiple colorists working there at the same time full time and you could have multiple people in support roles coming up you know we miss that because we haven't really had that for a while so having those social opportunities to get together and to just have a chat about you know this crazy thing that we do such a yeah. lovely and unique thing just be alongside your peers and connecting it's so important and i think Absolutely. that's really true for for me and for yourself as well having been in a bigger shop um you know, i remember sitting around and when it was quiet digital pictures and there were seven of us i remember this one day seven colorists sitting in a room it was, it was so great just to be able to kind of like chat and um talk about our processes and and for me to be able to as someone a little more new to the industry connect with those you know all those guys and um see how they work was so valuable um and i know that the other freelance colorists and colorists who have like smaller shops as well here like we all really crave that mm, um, definitely so i mean up. i'd love to actually ask you about that so moving from that you know seven seven colorist shop to freelancing was that a bit of a shock to the system i was so ready for it um i think when i got to digital pictures it was busier and over the course of three years it really quietened down um to the point where we weren't really um permitted i guess to like go out and even like seek work because they were trans transferring ownership of the business like we were basically shutting down and and i I think I can say this because the business doesn't exist anymore. Um, but, you know, I know they were hiring people for fear of them being competition. So it wasn't because we had enough work. And as the, the non-senior, like everyone was senior and then there was me, um, I kind of got, you know, the dregs. Uh, and so by the end of my three years, I just, I was so ready to get out on my own. I already was self-taught. Like I love the gear and I was like, all this stuff was changing. Like, the tangent elements were just coming out and Resolve was like a few, couple, couple of versions along. And, you know, I was just like, this is the right time for me to be out on my own. Um, as much as I m miss some things about it, I, it was so valuable having my time there, but three years was, was enough. Um, yeah. So what, what were the things that you missed and how did you kind of bring those back into your freelance practice? I think the thing that, like we talked about was connecting with other, um, other people like who do what you do, because it is kind of lonely being freelance. And for 10 years when I was freelance, I missed that. And that's part of why I also wanted to start a shop and like actually have a team, because I think as a group, you can achieve more than you can on your own. I um, can't agree with you enough about that. Um, yeah. And I probably should have mentioned this before we really started going, but um, I've actually just opened up something myself up here. And yeah, congratulations. It, thank I, you. Um, I listened to your interview with uh, Warren. Oh, well great. Oh, so you, yeah. you know I've got this little sort of two-room yeah. thing going on. It's a bit of a it boutique. It sounds really similar. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds it, like we're doing a similar thing. In some ways, it's similar. I think in other ways, what you're doing is a little bit more revolutionary. Um, you've kind of put an interesting spin on it, and you've you've definitely got, I think, a really strong business approach. Just looking at what you guys do and how you kind of flow charted it out of like you you know you pick an artist, you pick a space, and 
you know, you guys take care of the rest. It's it's really, I think, an interesting take on post and facilities in general. So before we get too much into that, I just wanted to say, like, I, I wonder what what it was that made you open Mood Labs. And I feel like you might have already kind of answered that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the other driving factors is as a um, freelancer, I was kind of being put in a lot of um, situations where, you know, monitors were not calibrated, um, things just weren't working, like software needed an update. And then when, you know, when you update, inevitably when you update something, it's like this domino effect of everything else needing updates and then four hours later you haven't started the grade so <laughs> i think as a freelancer to have a facility that you know if i book it i i know i'm going to show up and like we have configurations for and like artist specific configurations um and people conforming so it's all kind of ready to go and, and you can trust in that and they're not wasting time because Nothing worse than getting into a session and like being on the back foot and then everyone arrives and nothing's kind of ready to go and you haven't even had a chance to like look at put a lot on the footage and um so so that was one driving factor for me it was just like I just want somewhere that people can come and it's totally neutral like when clients contact us um we give them the list of artists and say you pick like I I would never book uh, myself on something first um it's always up to the client to choose who they prefer to work with I think so that, that, is, that was kind of unique yeah yeah I think that is very <laughs> unique um and I think that that point that you raise about you know when you're freelancing you're kind of going around to different facilities and you're really at the mercy of where they're up to in terms of their tech journey and you know, you might be working on a 10-year-old machine or you might be working on something that was bought a week ago. You don't know most of the time. And even within one facility, they don't usually clue in freelancers if they're doing major upgrades or if they have kit that's off-site for another purpose. You just kind of roll in and what you've got is what you've got. And you've usually got about 10 minutes to work it out before someone comes in. So um, I can definitely sympathise with that and and um also I think that was a motivation for me as well to have a space was then you've got that control over your system and you you can just decide when it's time to upgrade you don't need to go through a process with IT and you know oh we can't do that because the operating system does this and you know then we won't be able to use this other piece of gear and mm. it's a nightmare yeah. so there um, is something really exciting about being a new business and being a small business and can you be a little bit more nimble about um you know the, the trends in the industry and you can adapt and change. Um, I mean, we're so on the cusp of like, I, I feel like everything moving online where, you know, all of the cloud-based workflows are, um, are something that we're really developing and looking at um, and being able to like get ready for that um, and be ready and not be in a business where you've like invested tens of thousands of dollars in like storage and <laughs> exactly you don't have to write emails to the board to say look it's time you know we have to bring in this new bit of gear and they'll say but we just spent a hundred grand only 15 years ago how is that not still good yeah um, so it's great yeah. that you've got that ability and you know you're, you're only really beholden to yourself there and you can say this is this is how I see things moving that's where we're going. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you raised the the cloud because I did notice that you've got a cloud-based dailies offering, which is really interesting. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So we're still in our development phase. We're kind of at the moment offering it to um, 
basically small projects, ones that we kind of already have a bit of a relationship with the clients as well, and we're testing it. But essentially the idea is, um, I'll give you a little bit more backstory because I did, I was a telecine operator, you know, when I was at Digital Pictures, most of what came through, um, you know, the facility was graded before it went to offline. And then when everything sort of transitioned into digital, we like lost this step in the chain and people for years were watching everything in log and getting used to it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a human kind of, it's human nature to get used to something and your brain sort of switches at a point to think that's reality. That's what, um, that's natural, even though mm. it's log, which is like super far from natural. Right. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of colorists have had that experience where we're trying to get people trying to you're in a final grade and people are nervous about these these transformations that are happening and they end up kind of watering it down and bringing it back to pretty much close to the offline um so my mission <laughs> with mood lab is to sort of shake that up like change it back to what it was but because of cloud workflows we don't have to be so bookended about it, it doesn't have to be like everything has to be graded daily it's like having a a Fergus Halley in a van, you know, on set, like not every production is going to have the budget for that. Um, so why not use the cloud to actually have a little bit more of a holistic approach and be more selective about the footage that you want to be treated. So the, with the cloud workflows that we're developing, uh, for example, on the short film, they gave me a bunch of references. This is kind of their reference. Uh, after the editor made their selects, um, I got them to output an XML for me. For me, like just a rough XML, doesn't need to be tidied up. It's not like a conform. It's just a selection pool of media. We gave all of that media the treatment, really basic grade, nothing, no secondaries, just primaries. Uh, and then they've been sitting with that for a couple of weeks. And then we, we checked in with them and said, what do you think? How's it feeling? The director was like, I'm pretty happy. The cinematographer said, what if this scene felt a little more like this? And so we jumped in, we grabbed that scene and we gave it a different look, another version, um, and we updated the media pool. So it's like a bucket and then the editor syncs to that. And then they can sit with that for a couple of weeks. And when they come to do the final grade, both versions are there, ready to go. We're ready to start off from that point. That's the concept. Um, we're not ready to fully roll it out yet because like, Constantly, the technology is changing, and and we're we're trialing different applications, because um, there's yeah there's still a couple of little pain points, but um, that's the concept, and that's where I th I feel like the industry is going to go there as a color. I really feel like grading can be split into two parts. You know, you've got your, I think your like setup of your look and your balance, and then you've got your secondaries, your finesse, your polish, uh, and I I sort of see those as two different parts. And I think that first part, in my opinion, should actually kind of happen alongside editorial. It shouldn't wait until final grade. Absolutely. It sounds like what you're doing is bringing in a really long form approach to all productions because that's something the the higher budget, long form, you know, you'll have a show lot and then you might have some LMTs for particular scenes if you want them to be cool or warm or bright or dark or what have you. And that's something that we never saw in short form context because it was just a very quick process. I think time often was 
was the problem there. But I suppose when you're working in the cloud and you can work simultaneously on the same project, then you can make use of that time that they're in edit to be developing the look. So it's quite clever, really. And I've spoken with commercial clients about it as well, because I think whenever I bring it up, someone's like, oh, that's obviously just for long form. But, um, you know, just as many commercial clients have fight these battles with their client, like the brand or the um, product sort of, I mean, I had an example where I was talking with a producer and they're, they're struggling with this real estate client. Um, they just keep making edit changes because things aren't bright enough. I think it's a lot to ask of a client to imagine or to understand the process. So why not have a, have a system where you can't just do a quick brightness and they could just go, here's our selects, here's a rough cut. Can you just give it a pass? And knowing that none of that's being wasted. I mean, there's a lot of times when assistant editors are kind of thrown that task. That's right. And then it all ends up in the bin. And then do you find that um, people are still cutting in Avid or are people starting to cut more in Resolve? Because I can see this really working well if you're all in a Resolve cloud project. Yeah, Uh, it's a mixture. I think the more experienced editors are still mostly Avid-based. Um, and then in our in the kind of commercial world, it's a mixture of Premiere and Avid, and there's a few who are starting to make the move to Resolve. Um, and we we're trying to encourage people because uh, we think it's a pretty good editing system. And yeah, absolutely, as you say, say it's for our kind of approach, it works really well. Hmm. Do you have hmm. any particular technologies you're using, or is there something proprietary that you've got under wraps? Oh uh, no, it's something proprietary under wraps. Um, like I said, we've been trialing different applications and I don't want to say any because some of them haven't been great and you know we're trying to move away from them Got you. Um, but yeah we're still in that phase and actually Mars Williamson and I are going over to NAB show um, and we're super excited to talk with different developers and things about where they're at um, as well so that will hopefully kind of feed into where we end up. Um, That's yeah, really exciting have you been to NAB before? No, I, I am so, I've always wanted to go and I'm so excited to go. That's um, great. Oh, I hope you have yeah. the best time. It's going to be like our little Melbourne catch-ups but like on steroids. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I think everyone's going to be so psyched to actually be there in person. It's going to have a good yeah. vibe. So you've picked a good year, I think. Yeah. It's funny. I always wanted to go like even when I was at Digital Pictures, I wanted to go. But um, now that I have a shop and I was like not super busy, um, I think like a project was booked and then got moved. And I was like, yes, this is this is the time yeah. to do it. Go. Yeah, that's right. Um, so just moving on a little bit from the technology, um, I'm interested to know with the approach behind Mood Labs, the facility is almost BYO artist, even though you've got like a selection of people that you obviously work closely with. And I wondered what the idea was behind structuring it in that way and having that kind of flexibility. Yeah, I think I wanted to... I have a point of difference. I, I didn't feel ready or really, I don't really want to be a post house um, because I want to be on the tools and I want to be working. And um, if I can have a nice space and we've got two rooms, um, you know, if it got, gets booked up with other artists, then that's wonderful. I can, I can pick up some freelance and go and work somewhere else or, you know, have some time off, which is also nice. Uh, so, and I think there's particularly with the lockdowns and stuff, there's a lot of clients going directly to the artist. Uh, and so the, it's sort of um, targeting that market where um, they don't necessarily want to go to a full boutique 
post shop, but it's like free. It's between freelance and a boutique, like a full post service place. It's some somewhere in the middle there. You still get all the nice sort of treatment of being in a facility, um, but it's a little bit more flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the scenario would be then like a client approaches a colorist directly and says, I'd love to book you for a grade. And they say, well, you know, you'll want to attend and the client's going to want to attend. So, you know, we'll have to go somewhere nice. Let's book a lab at Mood Labs and off you go. And um, support-wise, do you have sort of, you know, those bells and whistles, someone brings in the coffees and all of that? Yeah, because that's hard to do from home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it, it does make a big difference when you've got, I mean, sometimes on commercial you can have, you know, over 10 people in the room, so having somebody there to make sure everyone's feeling looked after. and um, Absolutely. And no one's going to approve a grade on an empty stomach. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to distract them too with some uh, some treats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so true. Get some work done while they're eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What was the inspiration for the look and the design? Because it's really quite gorgeous what you've done with the space. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I had a very clear vision of the kind of um, aesthetic. It's really fun. People have started, you know, referring to things as being very mood lab. Um, which I just absolutely love because it's it's exactly that. Like um, I wanted it to feel moody, um, but also have a playfulness and a and a brightness. So the branding has a lot of color. Like you know, our brand color is holographic. Like it's just every color. Uh, and and then of course the rooms have to be fairly neutral. So we we've got the gray paint, but even the gray paint, I decided, oh, how am I going to make this like a little more interesting? So I've done this. Um, this two-tone thing so we've got the kind of the mid-gray on top as a pet like as a um as a wash so it's got this kind of almost fake concrete look to it uh yeah I think it's a part of um part of our roles as you know colorists is taste so I think this you know for me I wanted the space to reflect um having good taste and having style because ultimately people you know hire to to have that (laughs) to do that so it's important to me very successfully done. Nice job. Oh, thank you. Um, how are you finding being a founder of, I, I want to say a facility, I know it's not a post facility, but it is a facility. Yeah, a um, studio facility. A studio yeah. facility. Um, are you finding that there are different challenges to being a colorist, to running a, a, a studio space? Oh, yeah. I think essentially I've been in the zone of like, I was calling it phase one, which is like the setting up phase, which is, uh, it's a lot of work, like from trademarking <laughs> the name, you know, um, employee contracts and all of that stuff. It's completely new to me. Uh, and there's always going to be sort of like roadblocks and speed bumps along the way. And it's been quite draining that phase. Uh, I think we've just started to enter into our phase two, which were more operational, but yeah, there's definitely that side of it now where I have to be a little bit more selective about my time and, and delegating as well. I just have to, um, yeah, I'll get other people to come in and help me in areas uh, where I'm, as a you know, freelancer and stuff, I'm so used to doing everything myself. And I still, I mean, I still do a lot of it. I've done the website. I've done kind of like a lot of it myself. Um, oh, wow. That's, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a great website. It looks really good. Thanks. I think it still needs some work, but um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, clearly you've got those design kind of that enough of that design background to utilize it in interior design and web design and all a whole range of different contexts. And I think perhaps being in short form and in, in commercials for such a long time, you, you must have been surrounded by, you know, creative directors, art directors and branding people and you've probably seen more branding, more successful branding than most people because it's literally a job to, you know, watch and, yeah. and to part- mm. participate in that process of creating it. So um, I do wonder if all of that has helped to to bring all of these cool um, ideas into fruition. I, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine actually did the branding for me um, who I know through commercials. So, uh, you know, it's, it is absolutely true. Well, you've um, got a good pool of people, good pool of experts to draw on when you do need to delegate something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing, delegating and, and having, you know, being able to admit. And I would say, you know, going back to, you know, touching on me being like a woman and starting business is this imposter syndrome that like a lot of women have. Um and being able to tell myself it's okay not to know and to actually if someone asks me a question to be like I actually um, my teammate is more across that than me um, is something that yeah I have to come to terms with and be like I don't have to know everything um, and actually I can't know everything um, mm. so being able to say all right I'm going to focus on these areas and I want you to find out this is in this for me and then try and um, be across things of course but like not have to understand you know understand absolutely everything about the business i mean it's just you just can't like and also be an operator mm. yeah so and i mean one of the best things is i have a bookkeeper now so i don't have to do my own invoices ah that's <laughs> amazing so yeah it's so nice um, so freeing <laughs> yeah yeah and that that is that's a big weight off my shoulder so i'm looking forward to you know building the team up as well um in the early days we can't have that many people we, we just need to start generating more income before the team can grow but as it grows i'm looking forward to being able to um you know delegate and nominate roles and things and and spend some time um you know i, I would i'm really looking forward to having juniors doing first passes for me and then i can go and do some research and development and and you know talk with clients and things like that as well yeah, that's exciting the junior thing is something um new yeah and, I, I feel like yeah. we just touched on so many things there and I'm like which <laughs> which one are we going to to open into more before we get mm. into the juniors um I do just want to ask because I was going to ask you about being a woman in business and and also in this industry in general and you've already kind of mentioned imposter syndrome which I can relate to quite a bit um yeah. Do you find that there are any particular challenges to founding a business as a woman or is that sort of not really a gendered kind of consideration? Uh, I think I think it would be naive to think, um, you know, the gender thing has, it doesn't play into business and particularly as you you also touched on earlier, being technical in this, in this field, unfortunately, the pattern um, is that um, people don't afford trust to women um, as easily. Um, I do have to work a little bit harder for people to feel comfortable and safe with me with the gear. Now I've been doing this for 15 years and I still have that challenge. Most of the time people feel very comfortable because I'm very confident with it. I feel now with the business is, um, I have to do that again, but in another capacity where I'm just not afforded the same trust immediately as a generalization. Like certainly, um, a lot of people are super supportive um, as well and, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt. But, um, 
I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. I feel like you're almost um, like I've I've joked about needing a male figurehead just for certain meetings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> obviously, I haven't done that, and I have no intention of doing that. But to me, it feels like you've either got yay women in business and let's go for a government grant, or it's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's, like, where's, very the, where's the guy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, talk about technology here. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know some stuff about technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it can be highly but, frustrating. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but I just thought it'd be interesting to know um, whether or not that's something that you'd come across. Or you know, we've come a long way from like getting you know slap on the butt and like where's my coffee. But you know, I think there's still a fair bit of un- unspoken stuff <laughs> to, to wade there's through. Still, there's still a lot of bias, and and it's so interesting because sometimes people even on the other end of the spectrum come across as like they want to really support you but um that can kind of undermine your abilities as well where they're like oh, I get this I don't know if you get this but I get this like you're such an artist you're mm. a creator mm, that's right <laughs> or the they, they make a point of you being a woman and it's like it's, yeah. it's not about yeah. that <laughs> yeah yeah so I think we have a long way to go mm. I, I do think it's important to um and that's another reason why I was like, I have to do it. I had other people approach me um, to partner or to join their business or whatever. And I was like, no, there's no women with their own shop here in Melbourne. Um, That's as true. colorists, we yeah. have we have um, one facility, Mr. Fox with Flick, who's a flame artist. Um, she's a co-owner. But other than that, really, I can't think of any other space where um, women are running a post shop mm. or like a, you know, a color grading studio. So that was important to me as well because – while I don't like to focus on gender, it's it's there, you know, it's part of our experience, it's part of um, the challenges that we face. Absolutely, and, we can't and get away from it. to acknowledge it. Yeah, yeah, and to be like, no, I'm going to take this up this space. I deserve to be in this space. Um, I know to talk to that imposter syndrome, which comes from all of those questions that you get mm. from people. I, I mean, I have memories of, like, being in digital pictures and being the most um, experienced person on the luster across resolve conform. I like basically ran the kind of conform side of the TVC department at digital pictures. And I would be saying to a client, all right, there's a problem here, whatever. And I would explain it. And their eyes would dart over to the guys in the room yeah. every time. And they didn't have, they didn't have as much knowledge as me, but mm. every time you're faced with that and it affects you. Um, yeah, it does affect you, but you have to, push through it I guess and, absolutely and, and that's another reason why at Mood Lab at the moment um you know I've got Mars with me um and the rest of the team are all women as well that wasn't really intentional but there's something to be said about people having um the same ex- similar experiences and understanding and then being able to support each other through those feelings of um you know that imposter syndrome feeling and then recognizing that and being there to support each other because it's something quite unique too. Um, oh, I couldn't agree with people. you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I think it's wonderful. And Mars is great. You've mentioned her a couple of times. Um, yeah. I spent a very short period of time with her in Sydney at the start of last year. She came up to help on a grade that I was in and she's just amazing. She was she's yeah. just great. Like she came into a grade that was already well and truly underway and she just hit the ground running and 
clearly knew exactly what she was doing and was an absolute pleasure personally to be around. Mm. So um, she's a good pick for your team. Yeah, she's awesome. And, yeah, we're stoked to have her around um, doing that. You know, I think, like, being like having women running businesses and women being, like, on the tech, on the tools is really important. Um, and for me, like, being able to take up that space and be in that space is something, like, uh, it, it is a, it is a, another really important thing to me. I mean, I know it's hard. People go, oh, you're playing the gender card, but quite frankly, like, I don't have a choice. Like it's there. It's and kind I of tell been you, played already. It's been played, and I can tell you that us being all women is serving against us more than it's serving for us. That's right. Still, well, I don't mean to say yeah. that's right as in it is, but like you know, if you think about playing the gender card, it's sort of very much from the back foot, right? <laughs> like, oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and you know, and that's why it's, it is great because I feel like you've probably had similar experiences to me, and I think it's important that we communicate and that we all know we're not alone in that. Mm. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's really interesting because I completely sympathise with um, those moments where people would be looking towards a man in the room to sort of validate a technical um, direction, or even you know. I've had people just straight up say to me, oh, I assumed you couldn't do that. You know, we were talking about setting up port forwarding or something for a remote grade. And I was like, all right, well, we just need to do this and this. And they're like, oh, I assumed you couldn't do that. And it's like, just say it straight to my face. All right, then. Well, at least we don't have to, you know, guess about what you think. It's, it's straight out there. <laughs> um, but it is something that we're going to come across time and time again. But, um, you know, I, I think that there's multiple ways as well to be proficient um and I know this isn't an interview about me but you know I feel like there's kind of a couple of cliches of like either you're on the artist side and you don't understand the tech or you're super techie but you're not particularly crafty and I think that you know just like there are completely different lived experiences of anything that's normally in binary opposition I think that you know that there are different ways to be technically savvy and creative and artistic and craft based at the same time which you know we're always going to find our own point on the continuum and it's just about people learning that it's not black and white there <laughs> no it's a spectrum hmm. um yeah and for people to learn and be educated that you shouldn't look at someone and make a judgment based on their age their gender their background like all of that needs to just go and it's what they're used to they used mm. to I mean I still see you know pages of colorists and like 90 percent of them are guys mm. um, more internationally we probably have a bit more developed here in Melbourne but um it's it just what a people are used to and I got like I go to events and people are like are you a producer yeah <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> yeah Jeez. Uh, have you had any resistance or any feedback from any other post facilities or anywhere that like a full colouring offering kind of facility since you've opened Mood Labs? No, and it's actually been on my list of things to do is to reach out to them and talk to them a little bit about what we're doing here. Because um, I would I would love to, in an ideal world, collaborate with other post houses and, you know, think of us as like a bit of an injection of colour and particularly with our cloud-based stuff, it doesn't need to be even necessarily at our facility. Um, so I I am hope, hopeful that we can collaborate and we can work together. 
in fact, and we've come close to having other post facilities that have overflow and they need to book a space. And so we're here for that too, you know. That's great, yeah, because it's kind of, um, it's, I don't feel like it's a particularly productive way of doing things to see people as competition when, especially when you've got a small boutique offering like this, because if you're considered competition by the giant businesses, it's like, come on, guys, like let someone else exist in the space. So that's really good that you haven't seen anything like that so far. And, oh, you mentioned senior and junior colorists, and I know that you've done a workshop as well. So I take it that education and training is a big part of the philosophy at Mood Labs? Yeah, yeah and very much uh, one thing we want to do is with our panel discussions and things like that is to keep it fairly broad. I had someone else approach me about doing intensives and I'm like, well, I'm interested in that. It's not really where I think the work needs to be done. I think the work needs to be done on a broader scope. Like, let's tell everyone about the importance of colour and that relationship between us and, you know, the cinematographer and and the production. Um, So, you know, our first panel that we had was uh, about getting the look and that was with, we had um, the Cinematography Society were kind of supporting us and the Colourist Society and we had two DOPs and two colorists. Uh, Fergus Kelly was on it with, uh, with me and Mars was moderating. So we had this like fantastic conversation about setting up the look. What is that process? What does it look like on different productions? And it was more conceptual. Like I want it to be accessible. I want producers to come along and understand what we're talking about. And I want directors. We had a lot of directors there. Uh, and I, I feel like there's a lot of education to be done in that space. And that's where Mood Lab kind of wants to be, be kind of, doing videos whether it's online or whatever it might be just little snippets to be like have some um, insight that's on a more broader scale um, like for the industry and beyond you know one of our other events we want to do is on like the human visual system and and optical illusions and things like that because that all plays into what we what we do as well in the room absolutely that sounds fascinating um i'd say there's got to be a lot of research and there's a lot of time that we go into something like that was it was it particularly labor intensive to get the first look development talk off the ground? Yeah, it was a bit of work. Uh, one of one of the assistants here was working pretty hard on getting uh, getting you know stages and chairs and you know all of that stuff. I think having done one, um, we'd be like ready, like more ready to do a second. We're thinking three a year. Um, so we're not going too ambitious. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> sounds, that sounds like you could you could actually fit that in, right? Because you've also yeah. got to be colouring and running a business. So mm-hmm. you've got a few things to yeah. do. Yeah, no, and, and for us it's also a networking night too. So we had um, we had drink sponsors and, you know, we all talked and talked about the ideas and the concepts and it was just so wonderful. It was such a great a great night and great atmosphere. Um, so hopefully we can keep that going. That's so great. Uh, but then we I'll want to do to just down. little snippets as well. Yeah, please, please. Come I'd to love to come one. down Thank and uh, have a look. Yeah, the next one. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Um, I did actually hear on the grapevine the things that you hear from calibration experts, mm-hmm. but um, I heard that you'd purchased an ISO HDR monitor. Yeah, yeah. That's exciting. Sort of a new car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm sitting in front of my Sony HDR monitor, so I get it. I know. I heard, I'm like, oh my gosh, how did she, I like, it's just, it's a, there's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, expensive. honestly, I keep thinking like oh. I could have had an entire extra room on my house if I would not bought it, but you know, 
you got to look at it every day, right? If you're a carpenter, you'd want a really good saw. So that's it. And I think if you're going to invest in the monitor now and you have the ability to go into HDR, you just absolutely have to because that's, that's right. where we're going. Yeah, my my thinking was it's twenty thousand to get a decent SDR Sony, so mm-hmm. it's already stupid. Yeah. In for a penny, okay. in for a pound, just do it. Um, oh, are you really. liking the ISO? Yeah, I do like it. I graded a series on it uh, recently at another facility, different, um, mo- like the same model, uh, mm-hmm. but the, a different monitor, uh, and it was yeah, it was beautiful. Well, I've oh, worked cool. on I've worked on the Flanders and the Sony as well. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's just such a different experience working in HDR. I mm. love it, and kind of going back to SDR. I'm like, I'm so ready for SDR to be done with. <laughs> yeah, but, you kind of get hooked on having that extra dynamic range and that extra like color saturation that you get. You know, there's like a totally different feel to it. Absolutely, and I I always use this analogy. It's a bit like. Uh, grading an SDR feels like a sleeping, like trying to shove like a sleeping bag into like a sleeping bag cover. <laughs> you're just like, oh, get in there, like come on. Um, I feel like it's more intuitive and it lands in a place that feels more natural. But, but there's a lot of room for it to go wrong if you don't have good taste, mm. in my opinion, because you've got you don't have as much limited range. So if people yeah. ask you to dial it up and up and up and up, you actually can, and then you can end up with something that looks like a Christmas tree. Yeah, well, something that can actually, like, you know, be uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. Like you're staring into another dimension. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, yeah. sorry, just to kind of go back from HR, I wasn't planning on talking about that, but um, just came up. Um, <laughs> with the junior and senior colorist dynamic that you're talking about um i think that's really interesting and really important and as you're aware i employ a junior colorist and i just think you know i found it difficult to get into the industry myself to begin with and to to develop the skills that were required and i think possibly we've had a lot of similarities between our careers at different points um in terms of you know learning from generous mentors and seeing the value in that um, so can you talk to me a little bit about that, you know, that kind of development that you're doing to to help foster the next generation? Because it's super important, I think. I absolutely agree. And it's so difficult for new talent to be coming, uh, to get that experience and feedback. Because I think generally now a new colorist is just launched straight into a session with clients without having any understanding of maybe how you might run a session, um, time management techniques to help your client along as well because it's you're guiding them and i think as a new colorist without that you can really get stuck in some you know in some holes yeah (laughs) and it's almost unfair to say sink or swim when you haven't given them swimming lessons first you know yeah and, and no matter how many youtube tutorials you do or like you know mixing light tutorials you do whatever it is it doesn't teach you that inter-client um, relationship as well uh, and, and for me another thing I really like benefited from at digital pictures was doing the telecine and doing the dailies you know we get the film roll at like seven in the morning from the lab and then I would have until eight eight or nine sometimes to get it onto tape and get you know that tape was getting picked up to take to the edit um, you know the edit facility to start there offline and you've got to you've got to power through and you've got to get that done and you only stop when you need to stop and go back and 
but most of the time you're just you're grading in real time and i think that's really cool as well so uh as a training ground you don't have to you don't get into that trap that new colors do where they overcook it you have to you have to go fast um so i think for the daily side of mood lab we're excited to have juniors training on dailies because there's less stakes i can come in i can supervise i can check how it's looking uh, and then that's also cost effective you know for clients they don't have to have a senior on it from the start they can have a senior supervise that's amazing yeah. i think that I, I think it was so good for everyone involved right like ev literally everyone wins in that scenario um, and the, the cool thing about having a deadline is, like you say, they don't overcook it. And also, you know, the most important thing is that balance, that primary, you know, it doesn't matter how, like you can't kind of bring it back with a bunch of secondaries. If you if you can't get the primary right, you're kind of in trouble. So, yeah. you know, and, and also just to get your 10,000 hours, right? Like you just have to look That's at a lot it. of images you and do. do it a lot. You just have to do a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, practice, practice, practice. That's the main thing I say when people are like, what, how do I get into it? I'm like, just do as much as you can because your eye will develop. And I don't think, I've, I feel like less than five years is you're probably still not maybe quite there yet. Like, I don't know, everyone's different, but um, I feel like I wasn't there for five years. I think um, at 10 years, I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's when you hit your stride. <laughs> That's when you hit your yeah. stride, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got to say that was me as well. I didn't know if I was particularly slow or not. Like <laughs> it, it did take me a very long time. I think it was also a bit of a patchwork for me. Um, I, I didn't sort of have one person sort of teaching me their way of doing things, which I think maybe you get a bit quicker um, because you've only got that one approach, but maybe in the long run you miss out on some of the diversity as well. Um, yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent, but um, I love that you're doing that and I, I really feel strongly about it and it's just great to see that role coming back um, because it was very saddening to see when the major facilities were shutting down, um, the sort of mid-levels who, who rose up, they would get juniors in for conforming and things like that, but they wouldn't necessarily be learning anything more than just how to get it in as sort of quickly as possible and then they'd be booked on something else like you know for a different department even so it sort of became like a technical part of a role as opposed to an apprenticeship model and i think um if, if you don't get a chance to apprentice you're not really going to be any good you kind of can't sprint to the sprint to the end there you have to kind of just do your time right so yeah really cool that you guys are doing that um, I wanted to chat to you because you've been you've mentioned a few long form jobs, but um, I've I've always known you to be really prominent in the short form space. So can you tell me a little bit about moving from TVCs into long form, or were you always doing a bit of long form and I just wasn't aware of it? No, you're absolutely right. At Digital Pictures, it was very much you do long form or you do commercials. There was no crossover. Uh, actually, no, that's a lie. Adele Rafferty got the crossover, but I think she uh, might have been the only colorist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she was doing a series with a with a TVC director who she worked with a lot. So, um, but the the mentality there was that we were very very different um, different departments, um, which I never really understood. Uh, because I think it's still the same craft. Sure, you have to work at a different pace, but um, it's a different, you know, it's not that all that different that to think, oh, well, like you can't do long form if you do commercials. Uh, I was in the commercial department. I just landed there. That's just where the job was, you know. So that's kind of why I ended up starting in there. But I really, 
really grateful for that because I think a lot more of the colorists, at least in Melbourne, are going from commercials into long form rather than necessarily the other way around. Uh, and I, I'm not really sure why that is. Um, but I like that I can and I know how to like very much fine tune something to that level uh, in commercials and that I can choose to do that if I have time in long form. Um, but even in commercials, you have to work fast sometimes. So, yeah, this idea of them being so different, I don't necessarily agree agree with that. I think, you know, grading is grading. And if you've got the skill and the eye for it, um, then you can do it. Where it's very different is the client relationship. Ah, oh, interesting. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah, can you tell hierarchy. me a little bit about that? Yeah, there's just this different hierarchy in advertising. You know, you've got you start with your production company. So if you're lucky, you'll get a cinematographer um, in the room. We will get to have a chat with them. Uh, and then you've got your director and then the producer, like hopefully you get them in first for like maybe an hour and then your advertising agency will um, come in once the production is happy. That's the ideal. And then you might have an actual client, like the brand come in uh, to review and approve it as well. So that's your hierarchy. And basically once brand and client come in, doesn't matter what the cinematographer thinks. <laughs> uh, so you, you. Whereas in long form, the cinematographer is king, right? King queen. Um, they, we're almost more. I think in long form, it feels like I'm working for the cinematographer. That's a slightly different relationship, I think. Yeah. Every every project's different, but in general, there's a different kind of hierarchy, and you're playing that um, role of guiding a, a room, probably of more people. Although I would say, and that hasn't happened to me, I've done probably one feature film where we had a screening and there was more than 10 people, but most of the time I don't have teams that are more than three on a on a feature or a TV show. Um, whereas in a commercial, again, you can have 10 plus people show up to talk about, you know, the amber hue of the beer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Um so really it was just for you about taking what you already knew and using it in a different context as opposed to any kind of, you know, it's not like they said, oh, well, in long form we have a different colour, you know, it's somewhere between purple oh, and green. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess there's, there's different colour spaces. Sure. Like oh, yeah. P3. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah. And the trims and things like that. But I, I don't think P3 and Rex 709 are all that different. I think there's a different approach when you grade mm. for theatre, for cinema, than you would for TV. And I think I don't believe that going from a theatrical grade to a um, like a TV Rex 709 grade is just a trim. I think you actually have to mm. think about the environment that your um, audience is now in. And so you probably have to adjust for brightness if, you, if you've done something darker mm-hmm. as well. So there's that. But, I, I, you know, as far as the actual transformation, I don't think they're all that different. Well, I've seen some really, really great grades coming out of colorists who uh, had sort of been pigeonholed in my mind as being short form, like yourself and Fergus Rotherham and Matt Bez, you know, there's been some really cool um, crossover. And I I like to think that we're at a point where we can do both. So here's hoping because I I think they're just both really great for different ways, like, sorry, for different reasons. Like I wouldn't want to have to choose. (laughs) No, me too. I love the balance. That's, mm. I think last year I was doing so much long form. I was on this eight-part um, series, like one-hour episode series that was just a huge wow, huge part mm. of my year, Yeah, quite a big show. And um, 
you know, I was just never available for any of my commercial clients. And I'm like, mm. please remember that I still do commercials. Mm. <laughs> I mm. like them. I, I, I actually I actually think that might be one reason why people do tend to gravitate to one or the other because of the pace. Mm. Um, you know, you might do maybe four or five features or series in a year, but you might do thousands of commercials and, you know, clients want to work with you, but if they'll get frustrated if they can't. And so they might form relationships elsewhere and you kind of end up in on somebody else's books. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's a bit that, of a cycle there. It, yeah, mm. there is a bit of a cycle. Did you find that most people were pretty understanding, though, of that eight-part series and, and just said, oh, cool, when, when will you be done? Or, um, Well, the thing is, too, it was kind of like spread out. So occasionally oh, it would be available, but it would be very much like someone's like, you're probably not available, but are you? And I'm like, I actually am. And that was amazing. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't that often. It was more more, more the other case. With series uh, yeah. as well, there's there like you say, often it's one episode and then a break and then another episode. So sort of gone are the days of pushing all eight episodes out really quickly. Yeah, depends. Um, Sometimes it is. I mean, I've yeah. done some shows that are still like just jam packed, you know, quick turnarounds. But I, I find often at the moment, you know, visual effects end up um, taking us on, and you know, you meant to finish something. I was meant to finish one show months ago. <laughs> Still haven't finished it. Yeah. Well, speaking <laughs> of visual effects, I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about the portable door? Because I had a look at the trailer. I haven't watched it, but the trailer looks amazing. And I couldn't help but notice that there's a heck of a lot of visual effects in that one. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big VFX job. Um, Actually, sometimes... Mm. No, it was big. I was going to say sometimes some things, some shows and films can feel really VFX heavy when there's a lot of fantasy elements and mm. some of the more mundane stuff that you're like, there's no VFX in that. It has more. That's so true. <laughs> and you have to work harder to kind of blend all that, that stuff in it's so true. like reality. Um, but I loved, I mean, I loved working on the portable tour. It was really wonderful. I, I managed to, um, it was a strange one because the D- director and the DOP weren't based in Melbourne. Um, but we had some time to brief together in the beginning and then they sort of came back in after I'd done, I think I'd done a second pass. Um, so they were very hands off. Um, you know, we had a wonderful briefing session, setting up looks, uh, and then they were off and then I I was left on my own to my own devices. And if I had an idea, I'd kind of chat with them about it and say, what do you think about this? And most of the time they were really excited for, uh, for my, my ideas, which is just a wonderful uh, feeling when you you know you feel like you really are contributing to the project uh yeah so and there was some there were some sequences that we really helped along you know those visual effects as well um get it all married in and blended mm. in and stuff mm. it was uh, it's a cool film it was really fun Just oh great fun. did mm. you did you often have the visual effects in the conform when you would begin and when you would begin a scene or would it be a matter of you know, grading the plates and then seeing what the visual effects ended up looking like and then potentially tweaking to fit, fit them into the world? Yeah, I think the idea going into any feature is to get, get those VFX in before the grade, but that does not always happen. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the idea was there, but no. There were, but there were some big holes when we started. And then, of course, there's a bit of a break there um, and we come back once the VFX are done and, and do that final pass. So, um yeah, there were some big scenes uh, that were kind of, I think they were on green screen. Oh, kind of, gosh, it was a while ago now. 
some of these projects you do ages ago and then they're like i don't know why but it took a while for it to come out <laughs> it's like where's this film migrated when you do a green screen shot or a green screen scene i'd be interested to know whether or not like d spill and things like that coming back in visual effects completely change the grade or do you find that you can actually grade those plates like because when it's a completely green screen or a completely blue environment there's a heck of a lot of spill yeah yeah the d spill definitely affects the um, environment uh, sometimes more than other depending on the of course the environment but uh no i had to uh, on a recent show there was a piece of wardrobe which they should not have put on in front of a green screen it had a bit of teal in it um and the d spill like completely took all green out of that um element of wardrobe to the point where i'm like and because the rest of the piece of like it was a jacket and the rest of the jacket was blue and then this piece that was more meant to be teal uh had turned blue so there was no way other than marking and tracking this you know panel uh for me to then match that across the whole episode and so i had to go and i had to wipe out that teal part of that wardrobe so sorry wardrobe but <laughs> oh, no so it was actually quicker it. to take it out of the whole episode yeah. than it was wow okay it's way quicker mm. oh wow well that would have been quite a surgical operation <laughs> yeah i mean i don't i don't think i i just said this is what we're doing because i was like there's no one's going to opt for me to mask and track um every you know all the panels on on their shoulders and um yeah so could you tell me a little bit about where you think the industry is headed, um, the direction that things are going in? Because obviously starting a new company, you're thinking about what people need right now, not what they needed 10 years ago. I think uh, to be trying to, um, there's, there's a couple of things, right, with uh, where we're going as an industry. It's like, where do I want us to go? Um, and having conversations with other colorists, like what are their what are their struggles? Um, what what could be improved in our industry? And having that experience of doing dailies and stuff gives me like that insight into maybe a better time, you know, uh, and a solution perhaps for offline eyes, as we call them, when people get used to something looking a certain way. Uh, so I, I want I want to see the industry change in that capacity. Uh, but obviously technology is changing, cloud-based stuff, um, then we've also, you know, obviously HDR. So in the capacity of uh, what I want the industry to do, we want to do the film looks and the development and our, we call it great as you go approach to dailies. Uh, but I also see things evolving in the space of, uh, you know, cloud workflows, virtual workstations, HDR. Uh, there's even like a little bit, bit of this AI stuff that's, you know, coming through and we have to look at ways that we're going to implement that in our, in our workflows and not to feel threatened, <laughs> uh, by the idea that, you know, uh, um, auto automatic grading and uh, matching tools are going to become more prevalent because I think there's more to what we do than matching. And I think what we consider natural, uh, is so relative to our environment, to our perception. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of the human visual system is it's adaptable and we can, we can do a pretty strong look without people realizing and affect the tone and the feeling of a project. I love that about what we do. Uh, so it's ways of using that new technology to deliver that faster and to more people. Being self-taught, like learning color by myself um, from tutorials, uh, as the beginning of my journey, 
kind of gives me a really big appreciation for the like the everyday consumer having access to our tools uh, and that's why we are a resolve facility and that's why i still think it's really wonderful to have that accessible for people because you, you you're you're encouraging people to understand what we do and to get involved in what we do uh as well and i i think that can only um help our craft I don't want to see this kind of gatekeeping that some, you know, the big facilities used to do. Where it's like, oh, you can only do this if you've, um, if you know someone, or if you know, you were fortunate like me to get in the door. But you know, I really pushed my way into that door. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, yeah, I think moving with those trends uh, is something uh, Moolab, you know, is focused on and. Um, that's our kind of ethos is keeping things more accessible, more broad, more, more general and trying to improve uh, practices across the industry and not just for high budget productions. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I think that it's going to be very successful because surely with something kind of as, you know, I don't want to say the word obvious, but um, something that you really need, right? Like color, you can't get away from it. As soon as you start rolling, there's color on screen. So, you know, just being part of that earlier, um, I think people are going to get hooked on it once they start to see, oh, we can do this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Um, one other thing we want to do is archive properly. People don't really archive properly. Mm. So that's part of the offering is, you know, what, what do you mean by have cold storage what what do you mean by archive properly i would say particularly in advertising uh, and you know we often hear of um quite big ad, ad campaigns losing all their dailies or their camera rushes because someone hasn't archived it got you in any kind of reasonable way uh so we want to offer that to clients as well where oh, that's fabulous. You can, your dailies can go into cold storage and it's there. Probably, I'm not sure at this stage if I want to do LTOs. Mm-hmm. We'll have it as an option, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll outsource that. I don't want to. I don't want I don't know. I just want to invest in like new technology. <laughs> mm, yeah, LTO sort of does feel feel like old technology, but I've, I've actually had that thought myself a few times. I've been archiving stuff off to like 10 terabyte drives and going, yeah. This might be better on an LTO because <laughs> there's nothing worse than having your drive and you've got a duplicate of your drive and then you've got one yeah. in the safe somewhere and then before you know it, yeah. you spent thousands of dollars on drives and you're like, probably could have just afforded that LTO deck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Definitely I'm, a consideration. I'm totally. And I, I, I won't say I completely won't do it, but it certainly isn't something I'm excited by. <laughs> oh, I don't think anyone in their right mind is excited by LTOs. And look, if you are, I don't want to yuck you yum, but geez, <laughs> almost like get a life, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's better than not archiving anything. True. True. <laughs> well, yeah, putting it old on old um, hard drives, spinning drives and sitting them in a shell for, for years and years and then going to load them. And of course, the drive won't spin. You know, yes. Which happens a lot. It happens so much. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, look, thank you so much. Um, CJ, it's been great having a chat with you. I've really yeah, enjoyed hearing about Mood Loves and I can't wait to see where you guys go in the future. Um, maybe we'll do a check back in at some point to see how it's all progressed because you're very new. Yeah, so new, so new. <laughs> well, I'm um, wishing you all the Baby best. company. <laughs> thank and, you so um, much. It was really wonderful to talk with you. Such a pleasure. Anytime. For Mixing Light, this is Kaylee Bateman. Um, thanks a lot, everyone.